Please pray with me. Truly there is no other name than the name of Jesus. Come Holy Spirit, open our hearts, our minds to hear from you, but more than hearing, to be transformed. We thank you for your word that guides and directs us and gives us wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. For the last several weeks, we have been talking about margin in our lives. We've heard margin defined as the space between our load and our limits, the space between what we have going on in life and what is our total max out top, that space in between. We've heard that it is the gap between rest and exhaustion, the space of breathing freely, between breathing freely or suffocating. Having margin in our lives is the opposite of being overloaded, being overwhelmed, being right up to the edge. When it comes to margin, one writer said, margin is the space to regroup, to daydream, pick up a good book, enjoy a hobby, take the kids on a bike ride, run your dogs on the neighborhood trail. Margin is the space of living It is deliberate time creating more balance and deeper engagement in life. A few weeks ago when Brooke was talking about margin, he mentioned shelling peas with Grandma. And I was immediately uh, transported in my mind to the front porch of this little house in Macon, Georgia, that my grandfather built, had a small little screen porch on the front. And uh, you can picture red and white gliders, the metal glider furniture. And I would shell peas with Grandma, or sometimes my brother and I would play with my dad's marbles from when he was a kid, or we would play pickup sticks. And, and Grandma, she took that Dr. Pepper thing seriously when it said 10, 2, and 4. She would come out with a little tray with small glasses for everybody Dr. Pepper at 10, 2, and 4. And I remember that because we didn't have Dr. Pepper here, and it was, like, really special. But as I was thinking about that, I realized margin is where memories are made. Think about it. Margin, that space between what we have to do and what's going on in our lives, our responsibilities, and the limit of what we can do, that space is where margin is. Um, I, I dare say most of us didn't create a whole lot of memories going to work every day. Um, But it's that space of sitting and reading a book with the grandchildren or taking a walk and just enjoying nature, sitting and just watching birds come to the bird feeder. Those, Those minutes and hours where we have the freedom, it's not the things we have to do at the moment, but the freedom to choose what to do with our time. We talk, we've talked about margin in our finances. Many of you are familiar with Dave Ramsey, who wrote uh, the um, Financial Peace course for helping people with margin in their finances. And he says, one of the most freeing things we can experience financially is having options in our budget. One of the most freeing things financially is to have options 
and our budget. So that means that we don't freak out if there's um, something unexpected comes up, a car repair, um, the roof leaks, there might be medical needs. And more than that, I think that we're not frustrated when a need comes along that we'd like to support, and we can't because we don't have that margin. We don't have that space. Um, I was so blessed to go to the new Wineskins Mission Conference last weekend and saw so many places where the margin in our finances could make a massive difference in the lives of people around the world who are hurting. Um, So margin is that space to breathe. It's the space where we're not overloaded, and it's a space to make memories. And so in light of learning all of that, we've been challenged to ask the question, what is the wise thing to do? When I think about my time, when I think about my finances, what is the wise thing to do? Is it wise to spend hours on social media? Is it wise to fill up the calendar with meetings and events and and commitments? Is it wise to say yes to every ministry opportunity that comes along? Is it wise to buy that thing that was on sale that I don't really need, but the price is so amazing and I doubted if they'll ever put it on sale again? And what if this is the last one in all of the world and I'll never have another chance to buy it? Is it wise to look at my income and commit right up to the last dollar? Well, I think all of us, based on your reactions, know what the wise answer to that is. So I'm thinking the next question is, if I know what the wise thing is, then why don't I do it? If the wise thing is to spend more time in scripture study and in prayer than on social media, if the wise thing is to say, no, I can't take on that additional thing, if the wise thing is to take a Sabbath rest and really be refreshed, then why don't I do those wise things? And if the wise thing is to take that money that I might have spent on something that I didn't need in the first place and save it or have it available for a need in someone else's life, then then why don't I do these wise things? And I think about Paul, who wrote a letter to the Romans, where he expressed so well this struggle In a short passage of 12 verses, I'm not going to read them all, but think about 12 verses. He says this one thing several times. Verse 15. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. Three verses later. I want to do what is right, but I don't. Next verse. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Anybody besides me relate? Is it just me? I want to do what is right with my time, but I don't do it. And instead, I'm overcommitted, I'm tired, I'm frustrated, and I miss opportunities to be with family and friends and create those memories. I want to do what's right with my finances, but I don't always do that. I succumb and buy that thing 
that I didn't need in the first place. And so two weeks ago, as Brooke brought the sermon to a close, he said, when it comes to creating margin, it takes discipline. Now, if you were sitting up in this area, you heard someone who looks a lot like me sitting over there go, (coughs) You see, this is truth. I'm going to tell you something that is very true. If you look at every Bible study guide I have, for every study I have ever done, you will find questions like, what would it take for you to grow more deeply in your spiritual life? My answer, more discipline. What area of your life do you need to work on? My answer, self-discipline. What is holding you back from walking more fully in God's call on your life? Lack of discipline. I'm serious. I was laughing thinking about this. A hundred years from now when I'm not here anymore and my kids are going through my stuff, they're going to think, wow, mom had an issue with discipline. I mean, it is in print in those Bible studies. And so seriously, I think about discipline and I'm back at the words of Paul. I know what to do and I want to do the right things, but I don't do them. So this gets me thinking, what if I had the self-discipline? What if I had the self-control to get up from the computer and turn to my Bible? Self-control to turn the TV off and read something spiritually uplifting or spend time in prayer? What if I had self-control to walk away from spending money on something I don't need? And not only those areas, but what about self-control to exercise, self-control to eat the right food choices, self-control to consider what television shows I'm watching and what they're communicating, self-control to, com- to not complain waiting in a long line at the checkout store, and on and on and on. <clears throat> If you look on Google, there is uh, no shortage of books on self-control. Here's a couple of titles. The Willpower Instinct, How Self-Control Works, Why It Matters, and What You Can Do to Get More of It. Another one. The Science of Self-Discipline, The Willpower, Mental Toughness, and Self-Control to Resist Temptation and Achieve Your Goals. And here's my personal favorite, because I'm actually reading this book, and it's quite good. Your future self will thank you. Secrets to Self-Control from the Bible and Brain Science, a guide for sinners, quitters, and procrastinators. So here's some interesting things I've learned about self-control. One thing is that we have a limited amount Each day. It's called ego depletion. It doesn't have anything to do with your ego the way we think of it. But that's the term if you want to look up and learn all about it. But basically what it means is that we have a limited resource of self-control. And we start out the day using it the moment we wake up. Do I get up or do I stay in bed? It's it's like self-regulating if you think of that term. Do I eat a healthy breakfast? Do I eat donuts? So we start the day right off using our willpower and our self-control. All day we're regulating ourselves. When you're driving in traffic, you're regulating yourself to stay in your lane of traffic. 
You're regulating yourself when you don't interrupt someone that's talking to you. You're, you're thinking and you're making decisions all day. And as I read that, I thought, well, no wonder. I eat a healthy breakfast. I eat a good, healthy lunch, a salad with lean protein. And about 3.30 or 4 o'clock when it's time for a cup of tea, I need a cookie with that. Or two cookies. Or have a box of cookies. Because my self-control has kind of run out at that point. A second point about self-control is that some people are just born with more than others. Some people are just, they're just wired that way from the get-go. You may know someone like that. You may be someone like that. When it comes to margin, you understand what's important. You you make your schedule and your finances accordingly. No struggle, and you can't relate to Paul's words to the Romans. You know exactly what to do, and you do it. And would you please pray for the rest of us? (laughs) Because some of us, it is not easy. A third point about self-control is that, that I found very interesting is that children who are taught delayed gratification have more self-control. So that's just an interesting point. And so I'm thinking, well, here's the evidence behind all my Bible study answers. I just wasn't born with very much self-control. And so I run out pretty early in the day. And I would like to place the blame here and say that it's just not doable for me to create margin in my life or to have self-control in certain areas. And science is nice and it's interesting and it helps us to understand things, but science is not the final word. As followers of Jesus, we have a means to help disciple us, to discipline us, to instruct us in ways that lead to self-control. It is the final word, and it's called the Word of God or the Bible. So we're going to start with two verses found in Proverbs. Scripture says that the Proverbs of Solomon were written for gaining wisdom and instruction. So here's the beginning of our instruction on self-control. Proverbs 16.32 Better a patient person than a warrior, one with self-control than one who takes a city. A little bit odd verse for us in our culture and time. Better a patient person with self-control than a warrior who takes a city. Which basically means a person who can control their appetites and emotions, who has self-control, is stronger than a powerful warrior who sacks a city. It takes that kind of strength to have self-control. It makes us strong like a powerful warrior. Proverbs 25:28 says, "Like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control." Again, a concept that we're not familiar with, but in, you know this, Bible times, cities had a wall around them. And it had one opening for coming in and going out. And that was for their protection and for their defense, for their safety. Enemies could easily sneak in if the walls were broken down. And it was also a disgrace to not keep up the walls of your city, to leave your people unprotected by having your walls broken down. 
We are like that city when we have no self-control. Our walls are broken down and we're defenseless and we're easily attacked by the enemy. These Proverbs tell us that the person who has self-control has power and strength, is not defenseless or disgraced. Another scripture that gives us insight into self-control is Paul's letter to Titus. And he addresses this in chapter 2. It's interesting to note that the term self-control is only found 13 times in scripture, which I find really fascinating considering how much we need it to carry out all of the commands we've been given in scripture. But Titus is writing to a group of people on the island of Crete, and they had a reputation for uh, wickedness and for wildness. And so he tells the older men to be self-controlled. And he tells the younger women to be self-controlled and the younger men to be self-controlled. And so after he emphasizes this need for self-control, he says this. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodly and worldly passions And to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. The grace of God appeared in the person of Jesus and salvation was offered to all people. And those who accept that offer become children of God. I read this in a commentary and it was just worded so beautifully. It says, the education which the Christian receives from the grace of God is a discipline often trying to flesh and blood, just as children need disciplining. The discipline which it exercises teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world where such self-discipline is needed, seeing that the spirit of the world is opposed to God. When it comes to self-control, we have the grace of God, our Father, who loves us as his very own children, to guide us, to teach us, to discipline us, so that we learn how to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives. Toward the end of Jesus' life, he was talking to his disciples when he said, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The presence of the promised Spirit of Truth, the Holy Spirit in our lives, especially in our struggles, is a game changer. Here are some ways the Holy Spirit works in our lives. First, he convicts us of sin. Jesus said, and he, the Holy Spirit, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. It's the Holy Spirit that first awakens us to our need for God's grace. It's the Holy Spirit that first awakens us to our need for salvation. And then it's the Holy Spirit that continues revealing to us. Um, I heard Whitey referred to the Holy Spirit recently as the holy nudger, you know, and it's true. Maybe you've experienced that nudge before. Do you really need to buy that? 
do you, do you really need to eat that or, or do that or say that? Do you really need to fill up your calendar with all this activity? The second thing is the Holy Spirit guides us into all truth. In John's Gospel, Jesus said, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. The Holy Spirit helps us discern the difference between truth and error. The Holy Spirit helps us to know that the truth is that that thing that we wanted to buy or that busy schedule doesn't bring us the peace and joy that God wants us to enjoy. The third thing is that the Holy Spirit fills us. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, he wrote, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means that the Spirit is guiding and leading our lives, much like the wind blows on the sails of a sailboat and and moves that boat along. The fourth thing is that the Holy Spirit bears fruit through us. We all know that you look at a tree and, and you see what fruit is on that tree and that tells you what it is. An apple growing on a tree tells you that that is an apple tree. It's the evidence that that's an apple tree. And so we are known by the fruit that we bear. And the spirit in us produces qualities we would never consistently display on our own. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Isn't it interesting that self-control is last when some measure of self-control is important to make all the other ones happen? So science has some interesting things to say about self-control and and certainly making a budget, um, establishing some some guidelines for how you spend your time is very helpful and valuable. But at the end of the day, developing self-control is not about mental toughness or or nail-biting determination. To attempt it that way is to end up like Paul again saying, At the end of every day, I'm trying. I want to do what's right, but I keep doing what's wrong. Self-control is about surrender. Surrendering our time and our finances, our health, everything to the Lord, and asking the Holy Spirit to convict us, to guide us into all truth, to fill us, and to help us bear fruit. The Holy Spirit is our constant helper. He transforms us into Christ's image and equips us for the daily challenges. We don't have to struggle through life in our own strength. In all of our difficulties, in our conflicts, in our heartaches, and even in our attempts to create more margin in our lives, if we ask and allow him to, he guides our ways, he guards our hearts, and he gives us his wisdom. So a person with self-control is stronger than a warrior who can sack a city. A person with self-control is not defenseless or disgraced. And a person with the fruit of self-control demonstrates a life guided and filled by the Holy Spirit. And so we do ask the question, we ask the Holy Spirit to show us what is the wise thing to do. Sometimes it's very obvious, sometimes it's not. 
Sometimes we do need guidance to help make that decision. What is the wise thing to do? And then we ask the Holy Spirit to show us where we need discipline in our lives. And then we ask, again, to be filled, to have that kind of strength that we cannot create on our own, to find that space in life where we really live. And not just for ourselves, but people notice it. People notice when we have that kind of inner strength and that self-control. According to the word that we heard today, the Spirit of God does not give us, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Let's pray. Father, we confess that sometimes we are so like Paul, that we know what we want to do and we We know what's the right thing and the wise thing and the good thing and the thing that honors and brings glory to you. And yet in our weakness, we don't have the willpower, the self-control to follow those things. And so, God, we ask today for a new, fresh measure of your Holy Spirit, that you would convict us of sin, of those areas where we are falling short, where we are not honoring you with our time and our finances and and any other areas of our lives, that you would lead us into all truth so that we would understand and we would be able to filter out the voices of the world that are contrary to your truth, that you would fill us, and above all, Lord, that you would bear fruit in us. To the honor and glory of your name. Amen.